in the mid-20th century, Donald Gray Barnhouse was a pastor in Philadelphia, a very, very effective pastor there and preacher, and he had a national radio show. And one day on his national radio show, he asked this hypothetical question. What would things look like if Satan took control of a city? Now, all of us have ideas of what that would look like if Satan took over a city. But his answer to his hypothetical question was quite surprising. He said, all the bars would be closed. Pornography banished. And pristine streets would be filled with tidy pedestrians who smiled at each other. There would be no swearing. And the children would say, yes, sir, and no, ma'am. And the churches would be filled every Sunday where Christ is not preached. Do you get that? A crossless, resurrectionless, bloodless, gospel-less, Christless morality. And the Scriptures would suggest clearly that that's just as condemnable as a crossless, resurrectionless immorality. And it's this natural tendency towards the gospel-less life that Paul is taking on in his letter to his protege, Titus. Now, the seed of the gospel had, you could say, sprouted marvelously so and miraculously in this pagan area this pagan city called Crete. In fact, we know from Acts chapter 2 that there were Cretans at Pentecost. And so it's likely that these Cretans who were at Pentecost received the Spirit by faith, were converted to Jesus Christ, and they took the gospel back to Crete and evangelized the area. And so these Gentiles were converted... But these Gentiles, like many of us, were converted yet with a lot of baggage in tow. And Paul knew that. Paul had just completed a a short trip to Crete, and he had established some churches there. All right? And so, in order to ensure that these churches were properly ordered, he left Titus, his co-laborer, there to put things in order. And now it's clear by the time of this writing in Titus that there are two major problems in this church at Crete. Licentiousness and legalism. Now what is licentiousness? It's living your life with license to sin. The idea goes like this. I'm under grace. Therefore I can do what I want to do. It's someone who abuses grace. It's someone who takes advantage of grace. Now, what is a legalist? A legalist believes that he or she can earn grace. And so the license, the the one who is licentious, takes advantage of grace, and the legalist seeks to earn grace. 
And though both of these sins are two completely different expressions, they come from the same root. Hope and trust in the flesh for personal fulfillment. Hope and trust in the flesh for personal fulfillment. And Paul's going to show us in Titus that the only remedy for both licentiousness and legalism is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, over the past year, we have been looking at first and second Timothy. Uh, each of them, in their own way, have sought to demonstrate how the gospel and sound doctrine in accordance with the gospel um, impacts and, you might say, uh, the role it plays in the church and in the pastoral ministry. Now, we come to the letter known as Titus. Now, Paul, at the end of Acts we know was in a prison. It was his first Roman imprisonment. He was there about two years, and he was released. And after he was released from that first Roman imprisonment, he wrote 1 Timothy, and he wrote Titus. But then he was imprisoned again. And this time he was placed in the maritime prison, and he was placed uh, in a, uh, a death chamber. That's where he would die. That's when he wrote 2 Timothy. So, 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus are collectively known as the pastoral epistles. Why? Because they're dealing with similar issues. But each one of them has their own distinction. For instance, in 1 Timothy, the emphasis is on protecting the gospel of grace. In 2 Timothy, the emphasis is on preaching the gospel of grace. Preach the word in season and out of season. In Titus... The emphasis is on practicing, that is, applying the gospel of grace. And that's the emphasis throughout this book as he takes on both licentiousness and legalism. Now, these first four uh, verses we see here is actually just one sentence in Greek. It's remarkable how long some of Paul's sentences are. It's hard to break down. It's a very complicated sentence. Uh, but it breaks down to four verses in our English Bibles. It's one of the longest uh, introductions that we see in Paul's letters. And I want you to note here, there's no commands to obey. There's not one imperative. There's not one command here. In fact, it functions more like a mini-autobiography of the Apostle Paul. And so the question is, how can this introduction benefit us? Well, we know that it does. Because all Scripture is profitable. So we don't have to wonder when we come to a text, will it benefit us? Is it profitable? We know that Paul tells us, Pasagrafe, all Scripture, is God-breathed and profitable. And so this introduction in Titus is profitable as well. Keep in mind, Paul's life is a model of what the Christian life should look like. And that's why he will say numerous times in his letters, imitate me as I imitate Christ. In fact, uh, that's one of the main application points of this introduction. Uh, because Paul is going to emphasize, and I think he says this five times in this letter, short letter, 
he's going to emphasize good works. Good works. Now, why would Paul have to emphasize good works in this letter? Because good works was an issue in Crete. Okay? Because of their misunderstanding and misapplication of the gospel. You know, it's an utter tragedy. It's nothing less than a tragedy when someone who professes the name of Jesus Christ disgraces the gospel by his or her immorality. That is a tragedy. And here's why. It bears false witness against our Christ. It bears false witness against the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because what you are saying by your lack of repentance is this. The gospel does not have the power to transform me. The gospel does not have the power to change me, to redeem me. And so Paul is going to show us in this autobiography, in the first four verses, that actually... It does. The grace of God, the gospel of Jesus Christ, can indeed, it does, have the power to change us. And he's going to do this by giving us a self-portrait. A portrait of what a life looks like when the gospel blooms in the human heart. Okay? And the first thing we're going to see here is when this gospel of grace blooms, that is when it bears fruit, it has a captivating effect. You can't remain unchanged. All right? Look at me in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, Paul begins by describing himself as a servant. The Greek word there is doulos, a bondservant. Okay? Now, a bondservant, a doulos, was the most menial, servile person in the first century. And it's interesting that that this is the only place where Paul describes himself as a servant of God. Now, he describes himself as a servant of Jesus Christ many places. But this is the only place where he describes himself as a servant of God. Now, why is that the case? Well, we have to read between the lines, but the prophets of the Old Testament are uh, described in numerous times as the servants of God. And so it's likely that authority is an issue here in Crete. And so Paul, by describing himself as a a servant of God, he is essentially saying that I fall in line with all the prophets, beginning with Moses, who came before me. In fact, the fact that he is a doulos of God is Paul's way of saying, I am not acting on my own authority. I am serving on the authority of my master, who is the true and living God. But don't lose sight of the fact that he is a servant of God. Now, why do I make that point? Well, remember all the way back in 1 Timothy 1, in another place where he goes autobiographical, Paul calls himself a blasphemer. He calls himself a persecutor and an insolent opponent of the gospel. There's some in here today, and I don't have anyone particularly in mind, I can assure you. It's just statistically speaking, I can say this. 
There are some of you in here today that if we were to examine your past life or perhaps even your present life, shame would be the result. And it's hard for you to envision that God could ever forgive you for what you have done in your past. Well, let me just tell you right now, the Apostle Paul has you beat. He was responsible and culpable for the first murder of the first Christian in recorded history. He was a murderer. He blasphemed God. He blasphemed His gospel. And here we see this former murderer, this insolent man, who calls himself the chief of sinners. He's a servant of God. The gospel has the power to not only forgive your sins, but to transform you in your sins. This is, this one little sentence is an evidence of the marvelous, transforming power and grace of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, he also calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. Nine times in his 13 letters, he begins that way by describing himself as a, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now, what is an apostle? An apostle is someone who goes on behalf and in the authority of the one who sent him. An apostle is someone who goes on behalf and in the authority of the one who sent him. Now, who is the one who sent him? It is Jesus Christ. We know that from Acts chapter 9, Acts chapter 22, Acts chapter 26, and virtually all of the letters the apostle Paul uh, wrote. For Paul, to be an apostle meant that he was directly appointed and authorized and empowered by Jesus Christ. For instance, in Galatians chapter 1, Paul says that he is an apostle not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father. And then he will go on and he will say, For I would have you know, brothers, verse 11, that the gospel that was preached by me is not man's gospel. In other words, he didn't make this up. For I did not receive it from any man, nor was I taught it, but I received it through a revelation of Jesus Christ. Now, this isn't some just some nut job who, de who determined he was going to be a cult leader. He was given the right hand of fellowship by Peter, James, and John in Galatians chapter 2. So he was publicly validated as an apostle by those who knew Jesus most intimately. In fact, um, Paul, uh, Peter describes... Paul's writings in 2 Peter 3 as Scripture. And so Paul is telling us up front, he's telling uh, the church at Crete that what he is about to say in the next three chapters comes with the very authority of Jesus Christ Himself. He was an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And his writings, along with all the other apostles, served as the foundation of the church. Ephesians Chapter 2. Now, Paul also gives us here the purpose of his apostleship. And here, we are reminded through his self-portrait, a second point. When the gospel of grace blooms, okay, when it bears fruit in the heart of a person, it has a centrifugal force. Now, what do I mean by centrifugal? 
It means movement away from the center or the axis. The center, the axis of the Christian life is Jesus himself. So when Jesus saves you and the gospel of Christ comes to bear in your life, when it blooms in your life, you can't help but have a centrifugal force. It sends you out. That's why we sent five to South Africa today. That's why we go to Utah. That's why we do the basketball ministry and Awana ministry. That's why we encourage you to evangelize your neighbor and your co-worker. Because that's the evidence of a heart that has experienced the power of the gospel. And I want you to think about three E's here as we go through this passage. Evangelism, okay, edification, and encouragement. All three come to bear through a person who has had his heart or her heart changed by the gospel. Look at me, the second part of verse 1. Paul says, I'm a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Notice, for the sake. So there's a purpose behind this. For the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth which accords with godliness. That's why he's a servant. And that's why he is an apostle. For the sake of the faith of God's elect. I want you to think, first of all, the word evangelism. Paul was an evangelist. That's why he ministered. It was for the sake of the faith of God's elect, to use his language. We've already seen this earlier in 2 Timothy 2 when he says, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Now, what is this faith he's referring to? For the sake of the faith. It's not just faith in a higher being. All right? Most people believe in a higher being because God has written his law in our hearts. Eternity has been set in the hearts of men. Faith in faith is not saving faith, okay? Just because you believe in God, so do the demons, all right? This is to, to receive and rest on Christ alone for our salvation as He has re- revealed to us in the gospel, okay? So what is saving faith? Saving faith is the faith that I am a sinner... And I fall short of the glory of God. And because God is good, He has to judge and penalize sin. Imagine a judge that does not penalize crimes. Because He is good, He has to judge sin. But God is gracious. God is merciful. And God has provided a way where He can judge the sin and save the sinner through the substitute, Jesus Christ. And so those who have saving faith recognize I'm a sinner, but God has made a provision for my sin in Jesus Christ who took the sin in my place. He was punished on the cross in my place. He was raised from the grave in my place. And if I will trust in Him, I will commit my life to Him, I will come under His Lordship, my sins will be forgiven. Paul said that's why he was a servant of God. Paul said that's why he was an apostle of Christ Jesus. For the sake 
of the faith of God's elect. Now the question is, and many preachers avoid this, but we can't. Because what Paul is writing to us is from the pen of an apostle who is under the authority of Jesus Christ. So, this pulpit, by extension, is under the authority of Jesus Christ. What is election? And who are the elect? Now, we looked at this about three months ago, not because it's a hobby horse for us, it's because we came to that word in 2 Timothy 2, where he said, I endure all things for the sake of the elect. Well, again, let me start by affirming what every Christian has to agree when it comes to this doctrine. First of all, it's a biblical term. It's a biblical term. There's no getting around that. Which means it's true. And it means something. If it wasn't in the Bible, we wouldn't mention it. But because it's in the Bible, we recognize that it's a biblical doctrine. It's true and it means something. It can't mean nothing. Secondly, because it's a biblical term, faithfulness requires that we deal with it. Faithfulness requires that we deal with it, even though it's unnecessarily controversial. Now, why is it controversial? There's two reasons. On one end, it's controversial because there are preachers for whom this is their hobby horse. Okay? It's, it, it's the only thing they preach. It's, their, it, it, it's, it, it's almost like it's their meaning in life, their purpose in life. It's their hobby horse. It's the only thing they, they seem to, to focus on. On the other end are preachers who deem it as a curse word. Okay? They won't touch the word election because it's too controversial. And, and, or maybe they don't even like the doctrine itself. And so we have to deal with it because faithfulness requires, with it, requires us to do so. Thirdly, we agree that God is the one who saves. Okay? God does not make salvation possible. We do not save ourselves. Salvation is of the Lord, Jonah tells us. It is God who saves. By the way, that's why we pray as we do. Every Christian in this room who has a lost loved one, here's what you pray in so many words. Father, save my lost loved one. So what you are confessing on your knees is God who saves. Fourthly, we agree that not everyone will be saved. Jesus said in Matthew 7, there will be many who say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, and I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you. Not everyone will be saved. Fifthly, we all agree that Romans 10, verse 14 and following is true. What does he say there? How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they're sent? In other words, no one is saved 
without hearing and understanding the gospel. And that's why we send evangelists. That's why we send preachers. That's why we share the gospel with our lost loved ones and our neighbors and our co-workers. Sixth, we're not the ones who elect. It is God who elects. Okay? This is not a democracy. We're going to go to the polls in a, in a, in a, in a few months. But we're not the ones who elect in a God's economy. It is God who elects. Seventh, the elect are the ones who believe. The elect are the ones who believe. He says, for the faith, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. Okay? And so the, the elect are the ones who believe. Eighth, there have been godly people who disagree on what election is. There are godly people on both sides of the debate. Now, no one can deny that election exists. But there are godly people on both sides. The classic example of that is George Whitfield and John Wesley. Both two of the godliest men in American history. Of course, both of them were from Europe, but they were here as evangelists. And they disagreed on what election is. And guess what? They were the best of friends. In fact, uh, George Whitfield was asked by someone who agreed with him on election, do you believe you're going to see John Wesley in heaven? And there have been those who believe if you don't agree with my view of this, you're not going to heaven. Well, that's just wrong-headed. It's wrong. George Whitfield responded by saying, no, I don't think I'll see John Wesley in heaven because he'll be so close to the throne and I'll be so far away from it, I won't be able to see him. And so there have been those who disagree on this. Ninth, election is a reason to praise God. Ephesians chapter 1, Paul says, Praise be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly places with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For He chose us, that's the word elect in the verb, He elected us, He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. In love He predestined us to be adopted as Jesus Christ to the praise of His glorious grace. It's a reason to praise God. So if, if it's a reason to praise God, and I'm revolted by what we are to rejoice in, I'm not the one with the problem. Or, or the, the Bible's not the one with the problem. I am. And I am called to repent. Tenth, as we see here, it's an encouragement to evangelize. Paul said he was a servant of God, and he was an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect. He endured all things for the sake of the elect. Finally, 11th. The doctrine of election requires that we affirm God's sovereignty at some point in the equation. Now, what do I mean by that? The two broad views of election are these. On one end, you have those who believe that God's election is unconditional. It's based on no foreseen merit in the sinner. On the other end are those who believe that God's election is based on the tunnel of time, looking through the tunnel of time, 
and him seeing those who he would trust in him and then him electing those who trust in him. Now, as I've said, there are godly people on both sides. It's unnecessarily divisive. Now, why do I say that both parties have to affirm God's sovereignty at some point? Well, on this end, where God just unconditionally elects and saves, we're affirming God's sovereignty in eternity past. On the other end, the one who believes that God looks through the tunnel of time and, and chooses those who he knows will, ha, uh, will believe in him, they have to affirm sovereignty at some point as well. And here's what I mean. When God brings conception in the womb of a woman, we recognize, both parties recognize, it's God who did it. Okay? God is the one who brought conception. It's an act of God. Both parties also recognize that God knows the future. Now, there's a heretical movement known as open theism, but we will not even give that the time. Um, God knows the future. He knows the future free actions of, 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 of human agents. Now, when God brings conception, does he know what that baby's going to do? Yes. Does he know if that baby will choose him or not choose him? Yes. And yet he brings conception. Why does God not just bring conception to those he knows will choose him? There's a mystery to that. We don't know. We don't have to know. Who has known the mind of the Lord, Paul says in Romans 11. His ways are past finding out. But at that moment, when God brings conception in the womb, that's an exercise of divine sovereignty. Okay? Because he is, by his sovereign action, bringing life into the world, and he knows what that life is going to do. And so whether you hold to an unconditional election, which I do, or a conditional election, we have to affirm at the end of the day that God is sovereign. So what does election mean? Well, the Baptist faith and message, the Southern Baptist official uh, statement on election says this in its Article 5. See, this is not unique to me. Uh, this is a statement that has been set forth by the Southern Baptist Convention since 1925. Election is the gracious purpose of God according to which He regenerates, justifies, sanctifies, and glorifies sinners. It is consistent with the free agency of man. That's important to say. We're not puppets. Okay? And it comprehends all the means in connection with the end. It is the glorious display of God's sovereign goodness and is infinitely wise, holy, and unchangeable. It excludes boasting and promotes humility. And so, the Scriptures teach what I call a compatibilist view of election and any other doctrine with regard to God's sovereignty. And it's this. God is sovereign, man is responsible. And those two truths are compatible with one another. So, when I'm praying, I am affirming God's sovereignty. God save my lost friend. When I am evangelizing, I'm affirming human responsibility. You must repent and believe in order to be saved. Do I understand how those two 
truths comport with one another? No. I just know both are true. And I bow to that. Recognizing that God has an infinite mind and I have a pea brain. And most of my brain has fallen on top of that. And so, so when we, when we consider what Paul is saying here, he is saying that evangelism is a crucial part of this ministry. But notice the second word, the second E, edification. He says, for the sake of the faith of God's elect, and notice their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. Knowledge of the truth. Now, what is he referring to here? When a sinner is saved by grace, through faith, in Jesus Christ, he or she is given a new appetite for the truth. Okay? Which causes this person to long to know more and more about God. To know more and more about His Word. It's one of the evidences of regeneration. All right? And as I grow in my knowledge of God, through His Word, I'm conformed to Him. And I grow in my desire for Him. My zeal for Him. I learn more about how to find my pleasure and my delight in Him. That's godliness. Okay? Or as Paul says in Romans 6, 17, that the Roman Christians there obeyed from the heart that form of teaching that was delivered to them. And so as they, as they were taught the truth, it changed their affections. And out of their changed affections came obedience. They obeyed from the heart the teaching that was delivered to them. Paul says a very vital aspect of his ministry... And it's evidence of a heart that has been gripped by the gospel is that we play a role in this, this evangelism and this edification that is crucial for God's glory in the church. And so, so far we've seen three fundamental characteristics of those who believe. Faith, knowledge, and truth. A fourth one is found in verse 2. He says, in hope... Of eternal life, which God, who never lies, promised before the ages began. I love that. The word hope. The Christian has a true hope. All right? No one else has a hope. This is a hopeless world, apart from the gospel. But for the Christian, there's a true hope. For those who are in Jesus Christ, our eternity, our eternal life, our destiny is grounded in the promises, the faithfulness, the trustworthiness of God. And this is the most important thing about us. I saw a documentary this week on a former teammate, Derek Thomas. Family watched it with me. Derek and I played together for three years in college. And there was one scene in the documentary where you have Derek Thomas and Anthony Smith on the screen. Everybody envied these two. They were stars. Anthony would go on and become a, a, um, 
He would play in the Pro Bowl for the Raiders. Defensive lineman. Played several years in the Pro Bowl. He was a star. He was wealthy. He was famous. And Derek Thomas would go on, and he would actually become a Hall of Fame member. But what I told Heather, I paused the screen. I said, the interesting interesting thing about Anthony Smith and Derek Thomas is today they're both dead. Anthony was murdered, and Derek Thomas was killed in a car wreck. Everybody envied them in those days. I remember driving Anthony Smith around campus. He had no car. If he told you he wanted to get somewhere, you didn't even say, I, I don't have time. You took him. And, you know, here were guys that were famous, wealthy, and highly successful. There's no hope in that. The only hope an individual has is if he has eternal life. And the question is, do you have eternal life today? Because it's not a question of whether you're going to die. We're going to die. It's appointed unto man once to die. And then after that, to face judgment. Do you have eternal life today? Do you have the hope of eternal life? You can have everything this world has to offer. If you do not have the hope of eternal life, you have nothing. Do you have hope of eternal life? Well, in verse 3, Paul tells us how this hope is manifested. Look with me in verse 3. He says, And at the proper time manifested in His Word. And so this hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began, has been at the proper time, manifested, how? In His Word. Notice, through the preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of God, our Savior. And so this eternal promise of eternal life from God, who cannot lie, emerged into time and space, into history, through the Word that was made known through preaching. That's what makes preaching so important, which was entrusted to Paul, but has now been entrusted to the church by the command of God, our Savior. And that's why we preach, and that's why you need preaching. Because salvation and preaching go hand in hand. People are saved through the Word, through the preached Word. And all of us that our believers today have been saved from the penalty of sin, but we are being saved through uh, sanctification. Paul says that these two go hand in hand. There's a connection between preaching and salvation. And that brings us to the final point. When the gospel of grace blooms, it has a caring impulse. We've already seen that through this passage. Paul's care but notice how he ends this passage in verse 4 to Titus, my true child, in a common faith. Grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. When the grace of God blooms in a believer, the typical barriers of race and nationality and class and age and education all go away. This is evident by the fact that Paul, a Jew, who was a Pharisee of Pharisees, is the spiritual father of this Gentile 
named Titus. I mean, you think about the race wars today, and they are rampant, unfortunately so. Well, the race today, the race wars today were not as even as strong as they were between Jews and Gentiles in that day. And here you have a Pharisee, a Jew of Jews, a Pharisee of Pharisees, who's calling a Gentile his spiritual son, my true child in a common faith. Now think how comforting this would have been to Titus. Paul is going to tell him in verse 12 where he dropped him off, Crete. He says, one of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said Cretans are always liars and evil beasts and lazy gluttons. And this testimony is true. That's the culture in which Titus is ministering. He's, he's, he's ministering in a very difficult environment. All right? Paul placed him there. And Paul says, Titus, go minister to those people. Now, it would have been natural for Titus to look at that situation and said, I'm, I'm inadequate for this. I'm not competent for this. All right? But what Paul is telling Titus there is, Titus, your hope in your ministry is not bound up in your adequacy. It's completely dependent upon the grace of God in your life. Grace and peace to you. And that would have been very comforting to Titus. Titus, bring the word to bear. And when the word comes to bear, the grace of God is going to come to bear. And when the grace of God comes to bear, peace will be the result. That's how he ends that introduction. What is peace? It's the end of hostility. It's the restoration of harmony. That which was lost by the fall is going to be restored by the grace of God through the preaching of the word of God. And that's the reality for every Christian for whom the gospel has taken root and bloomed in his heart. Indeed, that's why Paul gives us here, in my estimation, his self-portrait. When the gospel of grace blooms in the human heart, it's a game changer. It's a game changer. It, it consumes us. It captivates us. It has a centrifugal impact and we begin to care. We begin to care for those who are different than us. Jews begin to care for Gentiles. Older people begin to care for younger people. Younger people begin to care for older people. College educated begin to, to care for un, uh, those who are not college educated. And those who are not college educated begin to care for educated. Seminarians begin to care for non-seminarians. And non-seminarians begin to care for seminarians. White people begin to care for black people. And black people begin to care for white people. The barriers are destroyed. That's what happens when the gospel of grace blooms in the human heart. And one of the means by which God ensures that this gospel blooms is the Lord's table. And if you're with us today uh, and you are a guest, we would invite you to celebrate with us upon a couple of conditions. First of all, you have a relationship with God through His Son, Jesus. You've been born again. You've repented. You believed in Jesus. His all-sufficient work for your salvation. 